0: Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, this sermon on Micah 7, it's the uh, last of a short series that I had the opportunity to work on this past summer. A couple of weeks ago, perhaps you remember, we had a sermon on Micah 4. Micah is an incredibly rich book, especially for being such a small book. It's only some seven or eight pages long but it's a summary collection of the key moments in Micah's entire prophetic ministry, which would have lasted some 40 years. There are many other beautiful passages in Micah that we could have focused on this morning instead. Chapter 5 is a beautiful prophecy about a coming shepherd from Bethlehem who would lead God's people back to him. Chapter 6 is a very practical chapter, with some very famous verses of what God requires of man in simple, easy terms. But there are a couple of reasons why we should focus on chapter 7. First of all, it was actually written as a conclusion to the book of Micah, and so it gives a dramatic overview of everything that happens in Micah's prophecy, and it brings that to a conclusion. But the second reason is what I really hope to get across this morning, and the second reason is this. Micah chapter 7 takes us from a consideration of everything else that's happened in the book to a deep, profound realization of God's glory. And my hope is that that is where it will take us this morning as well. That we would be able to conclude this book of Micah with that same sense of awe and wonder that Micah felt when he experienced these prophecies and considered all that God had promised So the theme for this morning's sermon is the most glorious of Yahweh's victories is over our sin. That theme comes from the very last three verses of Micah 7, which is our text, verses 18 to 20. But to get there, we'll work our way through the whole chapter. Verses 1 to 6 focus on the dismal state of Yahweh's people, and that will be our first point, though very brief. Then 7 through 17 focus on the hope of Yahweh's promises, basically summing up everything that has happened in the book of Micah. And finally, verses 18 to 20 bring us to that profound recognition of Yahweh's glory. Now the first verses of chapter 7, they follow from the end of chapter 6, which, like some of the earlier chapters, focuses on the dismal state of Yahweh's people. The selfishness and the corruption of the leadership in the city of God. The city officials and the population in general were all corrupt. Chapter 7 steps back from that scene. And it, and chapter 7 considers that scene from the perspective of the city of God. The kingdom of God represented by the city of Jerusalem. So the I. In verse 1, if you see in verse 1, I have become, woe is me, that I is actually the voice of the city itself. It's personified as if the city itself, the kingdom of God itself, could speak. In the book of Micah, if you read through it, it's full of these dramatic dialogues where cities are speaking or where he takes on one voice and then another voice. Now he takes on the voice of the city, and the city looks at herself And she says, verse one, woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first right fig that my soul desires. She compares herself to a vineyard that's been harvested and gleaned. So the harvesters would come and, and they would take all of the grapes that they could but the law in Israel was that they couldn't take any more than, than one round. They would come through, take what they can, but whatever's left is left for the gleaners, the poor people. And then the rest, would, the, the poor people would come in, and they would find every last fig or every last grape, depending on the crop, and they would take everything that would possibly be left. And if you look carefully, you can always find something, right, that the harvesters missed. But now... The city is saying, that vineyard is totally gleaned. There's not a single grape left, not a single fig. If you take the image of an orchard, nothing left in any corner of that vineyard or orchard. It's been totally cleaned out, and there's only thorns and stubble baking under the late summer sun, totally dry. And the city says, that's what it's like looking for righteous people inside me. The godly, verse 2, has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright left among mankind. Throughout the kingdom, there's no sign anywhere of the Spirit at work, giving life and joy. Just selfish people, all of them dead in their sin, dry stubble, no fruit at all. We know as believers, it's always so delightful and so refreshing to meet someone else who's a brother or sister in the Lord who in whom we see the spirit at work. But the city is saying, no, there's none to be found here. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. You try and come close to them, and you only get hurt. So the city laments the sad state of affairs. Where are all the righteous people? Where did they go? Why is God's kingdom so dry, so lifeless? How did things end up that way? And you can see this is so timely here in North America, too. Where is the church that was once so alive that the words of Scripture are on the parliament buildings? Where did that church go? How did it happen that now, everywhere we turn, we find lifeless people, people with no room in their heart for God? Business has become vicious. Everything's about me and my bottom line. Relationships are increasingly broken. There's so much loneliness and emptiness. A generation ago, nobody even knew what a school shooting was, and now it's in the headlines every other month. How did we become so selfish? Where is the church in all of this? Where did she go? Why is the North American church today also moving ever further and further from her God instead of repenting and drawing near to him? And yet that problem in Micah's day, that was the entire reason that God had come to Micah and raised him up. Every chapter in the book of Micah answers the different aspect of that problem. And as you read Micah, you realize that, yes, God is doing something about this. It cannot stay the way it is. And so Micah remembers that in verses 7 to 17. And Micah, speaking again with the voice of the city, expresses his confidence that things will not stay the way they are. Verse 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, verses 8 through 20 are actually written in the form of a hymn, a liturgical hymn that people would have sung for centuries in anticipation of the fulfillment of these promises. And they're essentially a summary of all of the prophecies that Micah had been given. In them, Micah, speaking still with the voice of the city, representing the kingdom of God, Micah shows us the reaction of the believers to those glorious promises. The reaction is this, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me when there is hardly any light left in the kingdom of God, when the people of God aren't shining like a light in the darkness the way they should be, because they themselves have no light inside of them, then the city remembers, still the Lord will be a light to me, to the remnant of believers. We long to see that light shining in our church, but when we don't, we still always have the light of the hope of God. No amount of spiritual decay in a church can ever dim that hope for the believer. And for the church around the world, no amount of spiritual decay in Europe or in North America will ever take away that hope from faithful Christians everywhere in those places and around the world. No, because our hope is not in the church and in the future of the church. Our hope is in God, no matter what happens to the church So the city of God trusts, in verse 8, that when I fall, I shall rise. And that is exactly what happened in the time of the Reformation, when after years of spiritual decay under the papacy, the remnant of believers rose up, and the light of the gospel again shone clear across Europe and even out to the Americas. And that's what happened in the Netherlands a century ago, when our spiritual forefathers rose up after years of decadence and decay. Believers may trust that God's church and God's kingdom will rise up again, even in times of spiritual darkness. Because even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. He will not abandon his church, even if she turns her back on him. And so the city confesses in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment. For me. Then verse 11 brings us back to the great promise that we saw two weeks ago in chapter 4, that the kingdom of God would go out to the furthest reaches of the earth, gathering all those who love the Lord as we do. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary, that's the boundary of the kingdom, shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and from the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yahweh will gather into his kingdom all of those who love him, from the ends of the earth, from the territory of the enemy, Satan, from his kingdom. And don't miss the fact, brothers and sisters, that that's us that he's talking about here. We are the ones who were brought out from the nations and brought into God's kingdom. And yet, for reasons that we cannot fathom, For no reason but the sovereign choice of God, there are also many who are left behind in that kingdom, who continue to walk in the same sins that we once walked, and they will be wiped out. God will deal with that injustice. Verse 13, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. And then verse 14. Verse 14 begins to reflect on the promise of the coming shepherd which w- which you would have seen in chapter 5. This will be the shepherd who will gather us, the wayward sheep, and lead us back to our God. He will open the way to green pastures, to the glorious presence of our God. He will lead us in God's ways, though we by nature would not have wanted to be led there, and he will show us the joy of walking in God's commands. And yet at the same time, if you look at chapter 5, at the same time, he will shepherd the nations with a sword for the same sins that we once loved and walked in and that we would still love if it were not for his grace. So that overview brings us to verses 18 to 20, where we'll spend the rest of our time. These verses bring us to that glorious conclusion that Micah realizes after all that has come before. Verses 18 to 20 are a response to everything that Micah has heard and that the people have heard through him, their reaction after seeing all of these wonderful promises. And we can notice, if we know our scripture well, verses 18 to 20 are based on the song of Moses that he sang after the Lord wiped out the Egyptians after the Red Sea after Yahweh delivered them from slavery in Egypt and drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea. At that time, Moses sang, and here I quote from Exodus 15, Moses sang, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Still Moses, you stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them, referring to Pharaoh's army. In your unfailing love, You will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. That was Moses' song. Now Micah, after seeing all of these glorious promises, and after seeing God's incredible love and patience with his people, he asks the same question as Moses. Who is a God like you? And yet there's something profoundly different between Moses' song and Micah's song. Again, Moses asked, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory? And then he details Yahweh's victories against Pharaoh and his army and the other nations. And we might expect Micah to do the same thing, to say, who is a God like you, who conquers the nations, who redeems your people, something like that. After all, Yahweh did promise to do that. And that's how Moses had responded in his day. But Micah sees Yahweh's glory in something totally different. Micah is totally dumbfounded by what God has revealed. And he asks instead, who is a God like you, passing, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Why that surprising change? Well, because Micah has learned something from all that has happened and from all that Yahweh has promised and revealed. He has learned something from witnessing that decadent, dissolute, degenerate, depraved state of morality in God's kingdom and the sheer amount of wickedness and selfishness that existed there and that existed in his own heart. What has he learned? He's learned that the true enemy of God's kingdom is not out there somewhere. It's in here, it's in himself, and it's in the hearts of all God's people. When he saw what Yahweh would do to the kingdom, he realized what the real problem was and is his own heart. And suddenly he realizes, I don't deserve to be a part of God's kingdom. There is no reason why so many others will be expelled forever from this kingdom and destroyed under Yahweh's feet because of their wickedness. And yet, I, I will still be a member of that kingdom. All this time, Micah had been praying for Yahweh to vanquish his enemies, and he never realized until now that he was one of them. And you see this so many times in the prophecies that God gives to Micah. God's kingdom is in the hearts of his people, and his enemy is is in the hearts of his people. His kingdom exists wherever hearts submit to him. And his enemy, the enemy that God wages war against, is sin, which exists in every one of us. And it's a lesson that we too need to learn. God's enemies are not only members of ISIS out there beheading Christians. God's enemies are not only communist leaders in North Korea. God's enemies are not only abortionists or homosexual activists that slaughter the unborn or sue Christian newspapers and bakeries. He hates their sin, yes, but He hates all sin. The enemy of God's kingdom, the anti kingdom, if you will, is sin, including the sin in my own heart. Those who love sin, and let's be honest, that includes us all too often, they do not belong in God's kingdom. They're opposed to God's kingdom. When we discover that, then our reaction will be like Micah's. Who is a God like you? Not destroying your enemies, but pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of your inheritance. Let's not forget that mercy, that forgiveness by God's sovereign choice. It only extends to the remnant. You can see that in verse 18. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. And the same is true for what follows. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but delights in steadfast love for the remnant. What about the rest of them? Those who aren't the remnant. God will destroy them. And so Micah realizes, and we should realize, that any of us who were as much God's enemies as any black-robed terrorist in ISIS, that any of us are shown mercy and considered part of that remnant, that should astound us. And yet he does forgive us. It's so clear. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We can notice Micah's using the same language as Moses did about the depths of the sea, but this time, it's not Pharaoh and his army that are being thrown into the depths of the sea. It's our sins. Now, some of us might be surprised by that battle language. After all, how hard is it to forgive? Do you really need to throw sins into the depths of the sea? Is this really a more amazing victory than what God accomplished at the Red Sea? it is. According to scripture, it is. To treat it other, to think otherwise is to treat sin as if it were not real, as if God could just make it go away by wishing it away and forget about it as quickly as we would like him to. But sin, sin doesn't simply go away. Once it's there, it's there. Those of us who have been hurt by sin, we know that. It doesn't just go away. Those of us, too, who have sinned against others and wished so badly that we could take back what was done, we know we can't. Relationships can be restored, but not the smallest sin can ever be undone. Once done, it is done. And yet Micah, who knows this, has now seen what God would do in the coming years. And part of that is that he will be victorious over sin their hearts, the hearts of God's people, and their histories are stained with sin beyond remedy in a way that you would think could never be undone. And yet God, nevertheless, has compassion on them. Again, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. The distance that our sins placed between us and God is so great that to anyone who looks at themselves honestly, they would think, how? How could that ever be overcome? Surely that is impossible to overcome that distance. Why should a holy God, so deeply, so profoundly offended by sin, why would he have any interest at all in rescuing sinners, in reconciling himself to such sinners as us? And yet he does, and he does so, totally. He treads them underfoot. He casts them into the depths of the sea. In the words of Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. The kind of love and commitment that is required to even desire that kind of reconciliation and then actually carry it out That love demands a power that is greater than any other achievement. It makes any other achievement pale in comparison. When God in Christ took our sins on himself on the bloody cross and exchanged our corruption for his righteousness, he reconciled us to to himself. He overcame that distance. He restored that relationship that we never should have expected to be possible. No victory will ever compare with that triumph against sin. That love is fueled by God's faithfulness, his commitment to promises that he makes, even if he made them long, long ago. That is the kind of God he is, forever and ever true to his word. We can see that in verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Even after his people have long, long forgotten about him, he does not forget his promises, and he does not fail to preserve a remnant in his church. He promised to Abraham that he would bless his descendants, and we know that means his descendants by faith. And thousands of years later, in Micah's day, he was still faithful to preserve that remnant. Today also, no matter how many might fall away here in North America, even though we see so much sin in this church and in our own hearts, he continues to love, to forgive, to preserve a remnant, and to be gracious to those who trust in him as Abraham did. So when Micah looks at the decay in Yahweh's kingdom and the wickedness that lives in the hearts of God's people and in his own heart, Then he finally comes to understand the enemy is not out there. It's in here. It's in his own heart. It's in the hearts of God's people. And then when he sees what Yahweh would do, how he would show mercy to evildoers like himself, then Micah is just left open-mouthed and astonished at God's ways. And we should be too. Recognizing this as God's ultimate victory should absolutely change us it should make every difference in our relationship to God. What is, after all, after all our only comfort from Lord's Day 1? Is it that God will provide for us in difficult times? It's true, he's promised he will, but it's not that. Is it that God will give us victory against our earthly enemies? He might, but it's not that. That's not our only cherished comfort. No, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my Savior, Jesus Christ, who's fully paid for all my sin and who sets me free from the power of the devil. No matter what happens in this life, I have every reason to leap for joy because God has reconciled me to him, and I never should have expected that to be possible. What a reason to rejoice and to love our faithful God. He does all this for his own glory, and so this book rightly ends With his own glory. Let us also give him thanks and sing his glory. We were once enemies of the kingdom of God by virtue of our own sin, which opposes his kingdom, but he is victorious, gloriously victorious, over our sin, and now we find ourselves by grace living members of his kingdom. That kingdom is not an empty vineyard anymore, devoid of fruit. We see life. We see it because he is gracious to give it. And what a reason also to hate the remaining sin that still is within us, to fight against it. How many millions of people will fail to enter the kingdom of God because of sin and will face his wrath for eternity? Since God has been pleased to preserve us as a remnant, though we are just as unworthy as they are, let us do everything we can to fight his enemy in our own jurisdiction, within our homes and within our hearts. And let us also renew our love for our earthly enemies, because we know the true enemy of God's kingdom is not them, but it's their sin and it's our sin. Perhaps there are some among them whom God will also call into his kingdom. Even if they sue our bakeries or drag us into court Even if the weight of our state or our country falls against us on their side, it is still sin that is the enemy. And that problem is at least as severe in our own hearts. That should give us hearts of compassion for our earthly enemies, even as we wage war against their sin that they would like to thrust on us. Finally, what a reason to bless the name of the Lord, to praise him day after day, It is so easy for us week after week to forget how merciful he has been. But we must never forget it. It must always be in our minds. Who indeed is like him, pardoning sin, passing over iniquity. He heals us from the sin which seeks to rule us and destroy us. And he surrounds us with faithfulness. He restores us when we fall away from him and he brings us back into his presence to know the joy of his steadfast love. He could just as well show his righteousness by casting us out, but instead he does so by healing us who indeed is like him. Amen.